0: My name is David Jesseson. Most of you don't know me by that name. In the last decades of my life, people would call me uh, majesty or king. But early in life, people just called me by my name, David. I can't ever remember anybody calling me Dave. Your pastor has informed me that you've been studying my life for the past several months i guess i should be flattered or or humbled which i am but i'm also uh embarrassed anyway he asked me to share a bit about my life with you especially about one of the worst periods of my life he told me that i i could be transparent and open since i was among friends i'll try let me start off by saying i think and, and please don't think me immodest when I say this. I think I can say that measured against conventional standards of success, both ancient and modern, I was very successful in a number of areas in my life. For instance, I, I, I did well in the military. I could quite easily talk to you this morning about being a military leader, about battle tactics and battle strategies, I led men in the military all my adult life. I joined the Israeli army when I was still in my teens. In fact, as a young man, I led our people in a very notable victory over our enemy, the Philistines, who were led by a giant of a man by the name of Goliath. That battle is still talked about among our people and others as well to this very day. Later, I became a leader of a guerrilla force. Many times we were overmatched and undermanned, going against forces much better equipped and better trained than we were. But God, in his grace, gave us some significant victories. But I wasn't just a soldier. I was somewhat of a statesman as well. Many of the victories that we had won on the battlefield, I was able to preserve at home. My predecessor, a man by the name of Saul, he left our nation in chaos, but I brought it to glory. I established law courts and and appointed a superintendent of agriculture. I I established commerce with surrounding nations. When I came to our kingdom, I found it brick, but when I left, I left it marble. I contributed to the arts. I established a band of men whose sole job was to compose music for our people. I love music. I have always loved music. I have always found that my heart was able to express musically what was deep within me, even in those times when my poet's pen ran dry. I have always believed that God receives great pleasure when his people who are gifted in music and in art and in dance and in handiwork, when they express their reverence and love and gratefulness to Him through their giftedness, I've always believed that. As a boy, I, I learned to play music on the crude, two-stringed Rubaba. but that instrument could not contain the music in my soul. I compose songs. They say that one of the marks of a great song is that it lasts Well, some of my songs have lasted for 3,000 years. You have them right in front of you. They're in your Bible. If, If you open your Bibles to the middle, you'll find the book entitled Psalm. I wrote 73 of the 150 songs recorded there. And if you ever sit to read them, you'll find that they cover the whole gamut of life Some of my songs were alive with joy and and, in times when when I was joyous, well, other songs were just filled with praise. Others I wrote when I was troubled, even even deeply depressed over circumstances in my life. If you sing, if you read my songs, you'll know something of my heart. I know that sounds like boasting and I don't mean to do that. It's simply a matter of accurate reporting that historians called my 40-year reign, the golden age of Israel. There are some people who write history. There are some people who read history. I made history. I left my mark on the ancient world. In fact, upon history itself. As I've said, I, I was a success in many areas of life, as men, as men count success. I could have talked to you this morning about any of those subjects with a certain amount of confidence, even a bit of bravado. But that's only part of my story. Because the sad but true fact is, again, in the interest of transparency, I was a failure in one area that God had called me to lead in. In spite of all my successes, at home, in my own house, I was a failure. Let me give you a little of my family background. I don't wanna bore you with a lot of details, but it may help you to understand better. At the pinnacle of my career, when we had defeated most of the other nations around us and our nation was living in prosperity at the very apex of my power, I had an affair. I committed adultery with a woman by the name of Bathsheba. It really didn't seem like very much when it all started out, but we have a way of making decisions, and then those decisions turn around and make us. I remember the day that Bathsheba sent word to me that our our affair had resulted in her becoming pregnant. I was literally panicked momentarily. I faced sword, I have faced arrow from a hundred foes, But this revelation literally made my heart melt because I knew that under our law, I would fall under judgment because of our laws and and who were very unlike the laws of the Egyptian and the other nations around us. Our laws applied to me, the king, as much as to any butcher or any baker. So I thought about it and I came to the conclusion that I had to cover it up. During my reign, it seemed as though we were constantly engaged in battle on one front or another. That time was no different than any other. I found out that Bathsheba's husband, a man by the name of Uriah, one of my 30 mighty men, at that very time was engaged on the front in battle for Israel, and in battle for me, his king. So I sent word for him to come home, and... I tried to get him in bed with his young wife so that he and everyone else would believe that the child was his. It was a perfect plan, or so I thought. But Uriah was not only an honorable man, he was a superlative soldier too. I told him, go home to your wife, enjoy a well-deserved rest. I retired that night to bed and I, I was thinking that my troubles were over things were going to work out. I assumed that Uriah had followed my instructions, but word came to me the very next morning that he didn't go home to his wife. Instead, he had slept under the stars at the palace gate. I went to him, and I asked him why he hadn't gone home. His reply was that he could not go home to be with his wife while the king's men were sleeping out in the open fields engaged in battle. So I thought and said to myself, uh, let me go about this in another way. What is your expression that you use if at first you don't succeed, try, try again? Well, that night I once again invited him to dinner. We ate and we drank, we drank. I made sure that his wine glass never ran dry. At the end of the night, as I showed him to the door, and 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 literally pointed him. I remember in the direction of his home. I was content again in the knowledge that uh, my troubles would soon be over. But they weren't. The next day, word reached me that he had done exactly as he, as he had done the night had done the night before. That Uriah had slept out in the open by the city gate, and now, now I became desperate. Although I didn't want to do it. I knew I would have to take more extreme measures. What I am about to tell you, I find difficult to speak about even now. The next day, I sat at my writing table and I wrote a letter to Joab, my field commander. It wasn't a long letter, but it was to the point. When I was done, I rolled it up and I fixed the seal of the king on it. Then I summoned Uriah and I handed the message to him to bring to Joab. In the letter, I ordered that Joab arrange for Uriah to be killed at the front. It's not the way I wanted it, but at the time I felt as if he had forced my hand. At least that's what I told myself. It worked. With Uriah leading his troops against the most highly fortified section of the wall of the city, as the battle was at its hottest, most of his troops pulled back as instructed in my letter, leaving him and the few men with him exposed. They became easy targets for the enemy. This plan had worked. When word reached me that Uriah was dead, I married his widow Bathsheba. The baby was born and I was sure that I had covered it up. It was then that I I discovered something. I discovered that what seems like a secret on earth is often an open scandal in heaven. In time, God sent a prophet to confront me and then everyone knew what had happened. And it had a profound effect on our family. I had uh, a daughter by one of my wives by the name of Tamar. She was a very beautiful young woman. And I loved her. I had a son by another one of my marriages. His name was Amnon. Somewhere along the line, Amnon became infatuated with Tamar, his half-sister and his lust burned hot for her. So, he connived to get Tamar to his apartment, and when she was there, he raped her. And after he raped her, he tossed her aside like an old pair of sandals. When I found out what had happened, I was furious at what Abnon had done to his sister. But in light of what I had done with Bathsheba and to Uriah, I really felt that there was nothing that I could say. Tamar was destroyed by his act. She never really recovered. She, she was never the same after that. She went to live in the house of another son of mine, her brother Absalom. When he heard about what had happened, he was enraged. But he did not exact punishment against Amnon right away. Absalom waited. Instead of striking him right away, he nursed his wrath for two entire years. Then he devised a plan. One day at harvest season, he had a a banquet and he invited Amnon and others to be his special guests. And while Amnon was eating and drinking, Absalom attacked him and slit his throat. Then he fled. I was heartbroken and enraged. For several years, I refused to even see him. But time went by, and and as time went by, I began to soften. I realized that I wanted to see him. I, I, I wanted to go to him. I felt in large measure responsible for the destruction brought to my family. But I didn't go. I, I, I don't know why I didn't go. I, I just didn't. And now his heart became even more embittered against me, and he devised a plan to take my kingdom from me. One thing about my son Absalom, he always had a great way with people. He, he, he had a great deal to offer them. He, he was tall and he was handsome and he was charming with a mane of golden hair. Women, <laughs> women loved him. And men, they wanted to be him. They envied him. He would stand at the city gate and see people coming to the court and he would sit and he would talk with them and he would feel their pain. He made promises to them, promises that could never be kept, but promises that they wanted to hear just the same. And they all left his presence with his words ringing in their ears. If only I were king, I would see to your situation. I would see that you got justice, friend. Things would be different if only I were king, if I were the judge of the land. And over time, he won their hearts. Before long, more than half the nation was following after him. And then one day, he made his move. came to attack me in the city of Jerusalem. I couldn't fight my own son. I certainly didn't want to fight him in our holy city. And so I took the troops loyal to me, and we, we fled to Jerusalem. We went down beyond the Jordan River to a city called Mahanaim. I thought that perhaps by leaving the city that it might satisfy Absalom, but I was wrong again. Absalom could not have ruled unless he utterly destroyed me. I would always be a threat to his power otherwise. And I was faced with the prospect of engaging in a battle that no matter how it turned out, I would lose. Because if Absalom won, then I would be killed. And all the dreams that I had for our kingdom, all the promises I had felt that had come from God, they would be destroyed. If, on the other hand, I had won, Absalom would be killed and put into exile. I would lose either way, as a king or as a father. Absalom continued to press the battle, and I knew that I would have to personally lead my troops against him. I had three generals who didn't think that that would be a very good idea, though. They said that I was too valuable to the kingdom, and that if I were killed in battle, the kingdom would be destroyed. But I really suspected that what they were really thinking was that I was getting a bit older and not the warrior I once was. Besides that, I, I think they thought, I think they knew that my affection for Absalom could blind my judgment. And so I divided my army among my three generals into three divisions. And as they marched out of the city to do battle, I remember standing there, pleading with them as they passed. Be be gentle with Absalom, my son. Be gentle with him for my sake, please. But my generals were not nearly as sympathetic to Absalom as I was. They saw him as a traitor, as someone that had to be removed. And they probably saw him as the darling son of of a doting old man. Anyway. The two armies finally came to blows in the forest of Ephraim. I was told later that it was a terribly savage battle. By the time it was over, 20,000 men were dead. During the battle, Absalom was moving from one part of the battlefield to another and as he ventured through the forest of Ephraim, this freak accident occurred. As he was riding his mule, his, his hair literally got caught on low-hanging branches of an oak tree, and the mule went out from under him, and he was left literally dangling between heaven and earth. When some of my soldiers came upon him, they couldn't believe their luck. They had several men guard him as he hung in the tree by his hair, and they went to tell the good news to General Joab. When Joab saw him dangling there, he took three spears, and one by one, he drove them through his heart. He drove those spears through my heart as well. Of course, I I didn't know about it. I was back at Mahanam waiting for the news of the battle. Then messengers came. The first one was filled with with good news. He told me that the kingdom had been saved and that the enemy was defeated. I didn't really care about that. I said to him, is the young man, Absalom, safe? He said he didn't know, but, but he did know. He was just afraid to answer me. Almost immediately, a, a second messenger followed him who gave the same good news that the battle had been won, that the kingdom had been saved. And I remember saying to him, yes, but but the young man, Absalom, Absalom, is the young man safe? He then spoke words that I will never forget. He said, I wish all the king's enemies to be like that young man. And then I knew Absalom was dead. (sighs) And in that moment of great victory, all I could do was to climb to a room above the entrance to the city and throw myself down like a woman in grief. And I remember crying, my son, Absalom, my son, my son, Absalom, would to God that I had died instead of you, oh Absalom, my son, my son. That was the worst moment of my life. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, look old man, you made your bed, now lie in it. You made your choices, now live with them. I'm not here asking for your pity. I'm here trying to tell you that I failed as a father. As I look back at my experiences with my children and my family, It seems to me that there may be a couple of lessons that uh, might be helpful to you, especially those of you with children and grandchildren. One thing that I have learned is that children need the presence of their parents. They need the presence of a father. I should have known that. This law that God gave to us, that I meditated upon day and night, it told me as much. At the center of the law, there is a passage in what you have as Deuteronomy 6. It's called the Shema. And that passage, which is central to our faith, it says this, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands and bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and on your gates. That passage, that central passage of our faith says that parents, and especially me as a father, were supposed to be concerned with the development of my children. And it says that I was to speak of these things whenever I was with my children in all of life's activities, which implies that uh, I had to be with them. There must be a generous proportion of time given to being there with our children physically, not to lecture them. But many times when you're with your children and nothing seems to be happening, everything is happening. I had seven wives. It's interesting. My law told me that the king was not to multiply wives. I had seven of them. I could explain it by saying that I was only following the norms of my culture, that some of my marriages were more for convenience or making political alliances. But I knew it was wrong. Of those seven families, I had 20 children, 19 boys, and one girl. It was an impossible situation. Though I was responsible for every one of those relationships, I was busy. You think you know busy? I was a king. I had a government to supervise. I had treaties to work out and sign. I had commerce to establish. I had an army to lead. And in my busyness, in my busyness, I just didn't have time for my children. But it occurred to me one day. As a boy, Absalom never thought about bringing me a broken toy. It's no wonder that as a man, he never even considered bringing me his broken heart. See, you think that time is your friend, don't you? You do. Time is not your friend. Time is your enemy. It almost only comes disguised as a friend. That is never so true than with your children. I mean, yesterday, you had that son or that daughter. You have them with you today, and you'll have them tomorrow. It seems that they will always be with you. That's an illusion. If you have a little girl who's 10 years old, you'll never have her at nine or five or two again. Whatever you want to instill in her at 10, you had better do it in a hurry because you will blink and she'll be a young woman. Your enemy, time, is always working against you. If you're a father, if you're a mother, you'd better get time with your children while you can. All of that is to say that children need your presence but there's something else. Something else that I have learned through the bitter experience of my own failure. I have learned that children need an example of a parent too. That passage that I mentioned a moment ago not only says that we have to be there physically, but it says that family living seldom rises higher than family devotion. That is what you give your heart to, That is what your children will end up living with. And I don't mean what you say you give your heart to. I mean what you really give your heart to. That is what you pass on to your children. That is what you will end up modeling for them. At a crucial time in their lives and in my life, I offered them a deeply flawed model. I had an affair with Bathsheba betrayed a trusted friend. I lived for over a year in disobedience to what I knew God wanted me to do. I eventually came back. I threw myself before God, and he forgave me. There is forgiveness with God. But the truth is that I went off to the far country and spent a year there. Absalom followed me. I came back, but he never did. I have a heart for God, but one year of disobedience had a drastic effect on my children. Children need to see a consistent model of what we value. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. And then, and then you can inscribe them on the lives of your children. What you value becomes what you are. What you are becomes what you model. What you model affects your children. In, in in, in, In fact, let me say this, if you have a heart for other things that really don't matter, maybe in a sense it would be better for your children that they don't have a close association with you. I mean, if you have a love for things that are passing, if you're caught up in a culture that's constantly turning values upside down, then you probably aren't the best model. But, but if you love God, if you love his word, if you're desiring to become more like him, then they need to be close to you. Then they need to be very, very close by. Because what we model affects our children. Well, I don't have much else to say. I, I could tell you this, though. That in that dreadful moment when I knew that I had lost Absalom forever and I, and I cried for him and said that I wished that I had died in his place, I meant it. I meant it with all my heart. If I could have that day back, I would have died for Absalom. I would have willingly taken his place. But only too late did I discover that God did not call me to die for my son. He called me to live for him. And that was a job that I found much more difficult to do. Well, stepping back from the character of David for a moment, we remember that he left with us a few, a few good words. If you're a father here this morning, your child need, your children need your time, every one of them. I, I know you're busy. I know that you often are ruled by your Google calendar. Then you know what we need to do? We need to type our children into that calendar because time is precious. Your children are precious too though. So why not give some precious time to your precious children? It was not until it was too late that David spoke the tenderest of words to his son. But you know, his son never heard them. I know that words of affection don't come easily for some of us guys especially, but they can make all the difference in the world to them. And they need to hear them. And they need to hear them on a regular basis. Just imagine what a a difference it could have made. In the life of Absalom and in the life of our children, if if we were to say, look, look I just want you to know that I, I love you. I, I, I wonder how that might have changed Absalom. Parents, there's something else. We need to model for our children what a man and what a woman of God looks like. Maybe today you need to ask God to help you kick off the shackles that have bound you and have kept you from becoming all that you want to be, all that you need to be, all that God calls you to be. Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 3, he said, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all that we ask or imagine, according to his great power. Maybe you're a grandparent here this morning. You know, grandchildren need godly grandparents. They really don't need to be spoiled and pampered or preached at. What they do need is to see your life and someone who who just lives for God. They need to be jealous of who you are. Not, not, Not someone who speaks for God, someone who lives with him. Perhaps some of you children here today need to get with your parents and ask them how you could pray for them. After they pick themselves off the floor, if you were ever to say that to them, they just may tell you how. You have no idea the pressures that your parents are under. It is a monumental task today to raise a family who honors God. Dad, Mom, you do a lot for me. Would you mind if I prayed that you be all that God wants you to be? See? I don't think they'd mind at all. There are folks here who are single parents because of divorce, because of death, for whatever reason. They're struggling to bring up their children. God knows your struggles. You need to know that this morning. Maybe if, if you're a man, you could, you could be extra sensitive to a woman who may be in that position. Maybe someone next door. Maybe someone right here at the Crossing Church. Give those kids an example of what a godly man is. In this community, it's a wonderful gift that we could give to one another. You know, the most tragic moment in David's life was when he lost his son. When Jesus Christ was on the cross, the Bible says that his father literally turned his back on him. And Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet, he really did know He knew all his life that someone was going to have to pay for the sins of man and women. And in that moment, he literally became, the Bible says, sin and fleshed, And the father broke that relationship with his son so that we would never have to. He turned his back on him and he walked away so that we could come close to our own children. After all, what good is it If you win all the prizes offered to you by the business world or the social world or the political world, and in the process, you lose your children. You know, I want to pray a special prayer over all our parents, no matter how old your children are, and I want to pray over people who have influence on children, whether you are a teacher or have nephews and nieces or you're a coach or however, let's Let's pray, and let me pray for you. Father in heaven, in some capacity, you have given us influence over the next generation of leaders and over the next generation of mentors. Some of us are just starting out. Some of us, God, have been given charges long ago. And sometimes we've taken that responsibility quite seriously, and then other times we've, we've dropped it and we've forgotten. God, right now, we want to ask you two things. First, to open our eyes to our children and our grandchildren and all of the relationships that we have around us where we could make a difference. God, let us see them and see the great crying need that stands before us. Let us understand our responsibility to be a model of a godly person who is following after you, and then, Lord, and then, Lord, help us to do it. To, to give them our precious time to speak words of tenderness and to be an example of a believing parent, a believing uncle, a coach, or a mentor. Let someone be influenced for the kingdom, O oh God, because of me. Let me be able to lead someone to the one who can truly change them from the inside out. In the name of Jesus Christ, we all pray this, and I pray this. Amen.